I've had my mic on all morning and turned it off before I came up. So if you thought the singing sounded extra good. Um, I have the distinct pleasure this morning of uh, catching everybody up who, who has not already been caught up on uh, how our Give projects finished up this past uh, Christmas. So in December, we um, take time to focus our attention on generosity um, in the middle of when we can get whipped into a consumer frenzy, we try to take some time to, to give some money away as a church. And this past year, we did something a little different. We picked three different give projects, and we announced them over time. The first one was Shop with a Cop, and we raised $2,000 for that to help KCPD. Yeah, excited to get to do that. The second one was uh, for Providence Home to redo their flooring in a men's home they have in downtown Columbia, and we raised $10,000 for that in a week. And we're able to, to do that. And the third one, which was a little more open-ended, was our uh, work we got to do with Oliver Gospel Mission. We contacted Oliver Gospel Mission, and we asked them, uh, what can we do? How can we partner with you? Is there anything that you need? And they said, we need a new roof. And we said, well, how does half a roof sound? Uh, because we don't think we'll be able to, you know, be able to do all of that. But we'd love to be able to kickstart that. We'd love to be able to get that started if you went around to other donors and said, hey, somebody's helping us get a roof. And so they thought it was going to be about $43,000, and that's well beyond anything we've ever raised, even in our whole Give Project. We'd already given away 12, and so we just said, hey, let's try to see what we can do to get this started for them. They uh, contacted us and let us know that someone came walking in off the street, which doesn't usually happen, and just says, walked in and said, I'd like to make a donation. People come in off the street all the time. That happens at Oliver Gospel Mission. <laughs> People don't walk in off the street and say, I'd like to make a donation. And uh, got to talking with them, and they, that person uh, puts roofs on buildings. And they said, hey, interesting. Uh, and they started talking to him. And that person works with an organization that will um, offer uh, cheaper uh, prices on materials, and they'll offer cheaper prices on labor. And so they were actually able to get a bid for a nicer material for less money. And so they got a bid for nicer material for $33,000 instead of $43,000. So less, $10,000 less, and uh, nicer material that was going to have a longer warranty on it. At that same time, our church was raising money and uh, had been doing pretty well. And then at our Christmas Eve gathering, raised another $17,000. And we raised $39,000 for Oliver Gospel Mission. So they're going to get to do a whole roof. And we got to participate in that, which means that over Christmas, our church was able to give away $51,000 Praise the Lord. And so let's just take a second. I just want to pray as we consider that. Let's pray, and then we'll study the Bible together this morning. Lord, you are so generous, and you provide all things. And Lord, we're thankful that we got to participate in you blessing that we got to participate in seeing how you provide and how you work and how you orchestrate and how you take care of your people. And so, Lord, we're thankful for your generosity to us in Christ. We're thankful for your generosity to us in every blessing we've ever received in every day that we've ever eaten and lived and breathed. 
And we're thankful that we got to participate in just a taste of your generosity. And we ask, Lord, that by your grace, our church will get to continue to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Happy New Year. Do you make New Year's resolutions? Is that a thing? Is that a thing you do every year? My assumption is, if you're the type of person who makes New Year's resolutions, you're also the type of person who doesn't mind raising your hand. So raise your hand if you make New Year's resolutions. This is a thing you do? Yeah, we got a handful of people? Okay. Anybody doesn't make New Year's resolutions but did this year? Like you're like, I'm in, this year I'm going to do it? Yeah, all right. Anybody usually makes uh, New Year's resolutions and we're just like, I'm done. I'm not doing it this year. I'm out. All right, cool. That actually is almost the amount of people that make them. That's interesting. We're falling off here. um, here, We're going to look this morning, and we're going to start the book of Philippians. So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to work our way through the book of Philippians at the beginning of this year. And there's something as we start this book and we look at it today, we're going to see a characteristic of Paul. An aspect of who he is and how he lives that I think if you could have this become part of your life, a characteristic of yours, an aspect of who you are and how you live, you would be blessed by it. Your year would be better. Whether you make New Year's resolutions or not, that you would, if you could take on this characteristic of Paul, it would be good for you. And if you could get to the end of 2024 and that be a reality for you, if you could get to the end of 2025, if that could be how the rest of your life looked, you would be blessed. And so as we study this this morning, we're going to try to understand this characteristic of Paul and how it's actually accessible to us in Christ and how we can live this way and have this. And I want to tell you what it is as soon as I introduce Philippians. So I'll tell you what that characteristic is in just a second. But look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Okay, so this is a letter, and at the beginning of their letters, they put who it's from. So we put that at the end. So, you know, it's a real surprise. You get to the very end, you don't know who this letter's from, and then you finally see who wrote it. But they don't do that. They tell you right at the beginning who it's from. Okay. (laughs) Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, saints just means all those who belong to Jesus, all Christians. There's not a special class of Christians that are saints. That's all Christians have been made holy by Jesus. And so it's all of them. And then it says, and to the uh, overseers and deacons, and those are two offices in the church, overseers or elders, and then deacons. And deacon just means the word servant, but it's a, a specific set-aside office. And so he says, to the whole church, and then to the overseers and deacons. And this is the church at Philippi. So let's get to know the city of Philippi for just a second so that we can a little bit understand uh, what the city's like and then why Paul's writing this letter to them and what his relationship to the Philippians is. And so this is a map that I got from the internet, and that's why Antioch is on there, even though we're not going to talk about it. Jerusalem, Philippi, Rome. So Jerusalem is where the gospel starts. 
That's where Jesus, uh, where Pentecost happens, where Jesus has been crucified, where his church is praying, where the gospel spreads, and then it works its way around, and we're in the city of Philippi now. Now, Philippi was originally called Kennedy's, and it was uh, a part of the Thracian people lived there. And then Philip of Macedon conquered it, and he renamed it. And can you guess who he named it after? He named it after himself. Yeah, so if I was a more violent man, there might be more places in South Carolina named Chester, but there's just the one. <laughs> so he renames it Philippi, and Philippi is strategically located. So it's inland from a, a bigger port city. It is next to a big plain where there's uh, fertile crop growth opportunities. It is at the base of and on top of an acropolis, which just means hill. It's the Greek term for hill. So that's why the Acropolis is in Athens, but all of their cities were on Acropolises, which is a strategic position to be able to defend the city. So the top part is on the top of the Acropolis, then the bottom of uh, Philippi is at the base of it. And so uh, it was conquered by, first it was Thracians, then the Greeks move in, and then the Greeks are conquered by the Romans, and Philippi becomes a Roman city, and then they build the Ignatian Way that runs all the way across the top of, uh, from this area over here, that's Galatia, all the way across Macedon, right there. And so it's this large road that runs across here. And so there's this large fertile area, an Acropolis, and a mountain that had gold. People liked Philippi, and they thought about it a good bit. It's also the place where Octavian and Mark Antony, right in that same big plain, defeat Brutus and Cassius. That the, the Brutus and Cassius that killed Julius Caesar, et tu Brute and all that, Octavian and Mark Anthony kill them, defeat their army right there next to Philippi. And then, it was shocking to everybody, Mark Anthony and Octavian start not liking each other as soon as the other guys are out of the way. And they battle, and then Octavian wins, and he becomes Augustus Caesar, and he relocates a whole bunch of retired Roman soldiers to Philippi to accomplish two things. One, get them out of Rome that has too many people, and two, make Philippi very, very thankful and gracious to him. So that's the Augustus Caesar that you read about at Christmas that sent out a decree that all the world would be taxed. That's that guy. And so that all happens. So the city of Philippi, large city, well off, filled with Greek people and Roman people and very loyal to Rome. And the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem. Paul becomes a Christian, begins to travel around. He's trying to go to a couple of different places and the Holy Spirit's not letting him. And then he has a dream. And this is all in Acts 16. He has a dream of a Macedonian man saying, come. So he wakes up and says, Silas, we're going to Macedonia, which is where Philippi is. And it says they went to Philippi because it was one of the leading cities. Probably traveled right along the Ignatian Way. As they're going to proclaim the gospel, they go to Philippi. They show up to Philippi. It was normal for Paul to go to a synagogue on uh, the Sabbath and proclaim the gospel, but it doesn't seem like there was a synagogue or he couldn't find one. And it says that he went to the river where he assumed there was a place of prayer. He goes to the river. There are some ladies there praying. One of those ladies' name's Lydia. He shares the gospel with Lydia. Lydia is a seller of purple goods and has her own household. She's a well-off lady. She becomes a Christian. And then she says to them, where are y'all staying? And they tell her, and she says, no, you're staying with me. And they're like, no, we're fine. And she's like, that wasn't a question. 
And that's basically how it reads. It says she, she impressed upon them uh, that they're going to stay with her. So they go stay with her while they're in the city of Philippi to continue sharing the gospel. This again, Acts 16. So they're sharing the gospel. While they're sharing the gospel in Philippi, there is a slave girl who begins to follow them around. It says that she is demon-oppressed, and she begins to follow Paul and Silas and yell loudly, walking behind them, These men serve the Most High God and preach to you the way of salvation. It's interesting, probably helpful. She does this for three days straight, and then it says Paul, becoming greatly annoyed, sends the, the demon out of her. He turns around and rebukes the demon and, and sets her free from demonic oppression. I find it very interesting that his reasoning was annoyance, but it was a blessing to this girl. But her, uh, she was a slave. Her masters are not happy because they used her to do fortune-telling and now they've affected a, a business they were running, a side hustle. And so they go complain to the authorities. Paul and Silas are taken, just a complaint, taken, <laughs> arrested, stripped, beaten. And then it says they were put in stocks in their ankles. Their feet were put in stocks in the, in the prison. So this is all in Philippi. They're in Philippi, having been beaten in the center part of this, this jail. And they are singing and praying. It says the whole jail was listening to them. I don't know if they sang well, if it was just odd that anybody would be singing and being happy, some more amount of joyfulness. I don't know what they were singing. I don't know how lamenting this was, what was going on, but it says that they're praising God. And then there's an earthquake, and all the doors open, all the chains fall off, all the stocks break that around the ankles and everything. Which is just so you know, earthquakes shake things. They don't usually pop every chain in a room, you know. But this one's special because the Lord sent it. And so everybody's suddenly free. The jailer wakes up, looks, sees that all the doors are open and thinks, oh, oh no. Worst thing that could possibly happen. If you run a jail and then all the doors are open, you're going to get fired probably. <laughs> But in his case, he's pretty sure he's going to get executed, so he goes to kill himself. Paul yells, don't do that. We're all still here. He comes in and, and is like, what, what on earth? So he takes them out, cleans their wounds. They share the gospel with him. Him and his whole household become believers. So you've got Lydia, who's well off. Her whole household has become believers. You've got this jailer, who's Lydia's probably most likely Greek, this jailer's most likely Roman. He's, he's a Roman centurion or a Roman jailer. And he's, his whole household becomes believers. And then you've got this slave girl who we don't know if she became a believer or not. She did, if she listened to herself, she said, these are servants of the most high God and they're telling you the way of salvation. And then she was set free from demonic activity. So it's possible she did, but the text doesn't tell us. That's the beginning of this Philippian church. Well-off Greek working class, blue collar, Roman, potentially a slave girl. We know that the, the church spread amongst uh, people who were in slavery. Like, and so if you've ever thought your community group was awkward, <laughs> it's possible they had a hard time figuring out things to talk about other than how good Jesus was. <laughs> and the, the people come to Paul in jail the jailer comes, they, they basically say, y'all can let Paul and Silas free. Now, I think, I always read this text, and I think that I would have said, thanks. Paul says, 
No, 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 no. Um, we're Roman citizens. We didn't have a trial. They stripped us and beat us. We're not leaving quietly. Tell them to come down here and talk to us. We'd like to know why they treated Roman citizens like this. And they freak out because they should not treat Roman citizens like that. They show up. They tell them they're sorry for the beating yesterday. Walk them to the edge of town and say, will you please leave? Paul goes to the church, encourages them, and then leaves. We see in the book of Acts that he does come back a couple of times. It's not, Philippi is not mentioned, but uh, they go through the Macedonian churches. And so it would be highly unlikely that they would go through the Macedonian churches and circle through and encourage everybody and not, not go to Philippi. So they go back through about twice to re-encourage this church. Now, move ahead from Acts 16, about 10 years. Paul got arrested in Jerusalem. They, they found out there was a plot to kill him. So they moved him to Caesarea, which is up towards Antioch. And then he appeals to Caesar, and they move him to Rome. Paul's in Rome in prison when he writes this letter. And the way this works is if you got arrested in Rome, you would quickly have some sort of a trial, usually. Usually it would happen fairly quickly, depending on what it was. They would often beat you and release you make you pay a fine, release you. They could put you in a debtor's prison where you worked off a debt. There were underground prisons for people who weren't Roman citizens or who people or people who were going to be executed quickly. Paul's not put there. If you're a Roman citizen, but you're not well off, you were put in house arrest, but you were chained to a guard. That seems to be the situation that Paul's in. He's under house arrest, chained at all times to a Roman guard. Um, that's why he refers to his chains multiple times in his letters. Remember my chains? He says, I write this, chained as a criminal. We don't think he was being uh, dramatic. We think he had chains. Um, but we know he was under house arrest. And when you're under house arrest, you have to supply your own needs. They don't feed you. They don't take care of you. So you're on the, the mercy of your friends and family to take care of you. And so he was chained to a, uh, just so you know, if you're a well-off Roman, you could be under house arrest and not be chained up. But Paul fits in the not well-off Roman situation. The Philippians find out Paul's in, in jail in Rome. He's under house arrest. And they decide to send him a gift 800 miles away. This church says, no, this is Paul. This is Paul that helped us get started. This is Paul that we love. This is Paul that's our, our missionary that helped us plant us and has gone on and we've helped send and they've partnered with him throughout. And they, so they send Epaphroditus to take a gift to them. Epaphroditus almost dies trying to do this. But he gets the gift to him. Paul, now receiving this gift to help provide for his needs while he's in house arrest, writes this letter and sends it back with Epaphroditus. It probably took Epaphroditus. He would have taken the Ignatian way. We don't know if he walked, rode a horse, paid for somebody to take him on a cart. But it probably took him. And then he could go up and around. Or he could go across the water and then up which is probably what he did, but it probably took him six weeks to six months, depending on how he traveled to, to, to deliver this. Then he would have stayed with Paul a little bit and was sent back. That's the letter that Paul's writing back to the Philippians in thanks for their partnership. Look at verse 3. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, something interesting shows up right here in this text, and that's what I want to point out to us today as we begin trying to wrap our head around the message of Philippians and, and the tone of Philippians. Arguably, things aren't going great for Paul. He's been under arrest for quite a while now, from Jerusalem to Caesarea and over to Rome. And if you'll read in Acts, his trip to Rome wasn't a nice one. There was shipwrecks and problems. He got, they, he got shipwrecked. He survives that. They build a fire to dry off. A snake comes out and bites him. That's a bad day, y'all. <laughs> like, it just is a continual, just that everything's kind of going poorly. And he's in jail now and in prison now, in house arrest in Rome. And he's having to, so he needs people to supply his own needs. Like, he's, he's in trouble. And he writes this letter. And do y'all see the word joy in verse 4. It says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. That's the first time it shows up in Philippians, but it's not the last time it shows up in Philippians. People refer to this as the joy epistle, the, the joy letter. That's what epistle is. So if you ever hear of someone called, refer to the Pauline epistles, they just mean the letters written by Paul. But this is the joy one. He's joyful. Now, this whole letter the tone of it, Paul's posture, his heart in this letter is joyful, hopeful, and confident. Joyful, hopeful, and confident. Now, I imagine whether you make New Year's resolutions or you don't, and since we raised our hands earlier, most of you don't, but I imagine that if you could know that at the end of 2024, the way your year would have been described was joyful, hopeful, and confident? You'd be like, yeah, sign me up. Sounds great. If you could know that your life played out and on your, on your epitaph, on your tombstone, was a couple of dates, a little dash, and it said joyful, hopeful, confident. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. Because I'm not sure that's how you would describe 2023. Maybe it is. By Lord's grace, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe that's how you would describe this past year. Maybe you'd use words like anxious, sad. Maybe just things like tired, bored, fine. But y'all, Paul's, Paul's in prison. So... So this tone of life for him is not based off of his circumstances. But so often, ours is. When someone asks, how are you doing? I can answer that question, but I'll report on it like I'm reporting the weather. I can just tell you what it's like, but it's just based off of what's going on. Are things good or are things bad? Like I'm somehow just a, I'm, I'm a victim to it. I'm just participant in it. I just see it, but I, I don't have any control over it. There's, it's based off of my circumstances. It's what's going on around me. And if you'll think about a lot of the goals that we set in life, whether you make them every year or you just have them going on in your head, but a lot of the things that you're striving for, looking forward to, chasing after are circumstantial things. Things that you can gain or lose. 
things that can be good, and if you don't have them, can be bad. And much of your life has been after circumstantial things. It's been a, a relationship or a job or a house, a physical trait. It's been something you could own that therefore could be broken or stolen. Like it's circumstantial. But Paul evidently is a part of something, tapping into something, existing in a situation where it's not circumstantial. Because if it were circumstantial, this letter would read differently. But let me show you how this reads. I want to show you joyful, hopeful, confident. We're going to go through all of this whole book together uh, over time, but I'm going to show you some highlights today. Look at verse 6 which we'll spend time on next week. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you're looking and asking, what does Paul have that helps him exist in a non-circumstantial way where there's joy and hope and confidence in the middle of difficulty? Well, here's the first answer, Jesus. He says, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you. I'm, I'm certain of who Jesus is. I know who I believe in. I know what he's like. I know how good he is. I'm trusting in Jesus. And if you're surprised to hear that it's Jesus, we're glad that you're here at Mill City Church. But that's what we talk about. It's Jesus. That's who we talk about and how good he is and how wonderful he is. And because that's what the Bible talks about. That's what Paul's talking about, that he has Jesus. We're going to see he has something else as well, but he's got Jesus uh, Chapter 1, verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, so we already saw he's sure, now he's got hope and courage, full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if some of you were thinking, well, maybe he's hopeful because it looks like it's going to go in his favor. He just says, I'm fully courageous, fully hopeful that whether I live or die, because he's facing execution as a real possibility, that Christ will be glorified. So it's not that he's hoping his circumstances will get better. It's that he has something beyond that. Chapter 2, verse 10 He says, so that at the name of Jesus, he's talking about Jesus and who he is and what he's like. He says, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that Paul's eyes are on Jesus. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul's in prison and he says, oh, my eyes are on Jesus. And my eyes are on that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. My eyes are on that day when this lowly chained up body is transformed, that I have hope beyond these four walls that I have hope beyond these circumstances because I have Christ and everything's in him. Now, that's, that's good. That's a wonderful place to be. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice means to show joy, to participate in, to experience joy. We don't use the word rejoice much. 
It's not like one, you probably didn't use it yesterday. You weren't like, my team won. We must rejoice. <laughs> probably didn't happen. And for Colts fans, it definitely didn't. He says to show joy, to experience joy. And here he says, why? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Here's why there's joy. Here's why there's rejoicing. Jesus, he's imminent. He's king. He rules. He reigns. He'll return. All of our joy is bound up in him. The Lord is at hand. And he ends the book. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's in prison. But goodness, doesn't he sound happier than us? To hear the way he speaks, the where his heart is, where his head is, where his joy is, and the way we walk around. But see, he doesn't just have Jesus. He does. And I, I think Paul might would, and I don't like the way I said that because I think Paul might would argue with me. When it boils all down, he does. He just has Jesus. But because he just has Jesus, he has something else that I want us to see. He's got purpose. He's got a why beyond his circumstances. There's a, a man named uh, Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish man who lived in Austria. Uh, was born in 19-teens, 1920s, um, and so was just coming of age, uh, getting out of school, getting married, when the Nazis began to take over Austria. And as a Jewish man, his, his world was getting tightened in on him where he was allowed to work, what he was allowed to do, was tightening and tightening. And I want to read this quote about his life. It says this, In 1942, just nine months after his marriage, Frankel and his family were sent to Terenzistad, concentration camp. His father died there of starvation and pneumonia. In 1944, Frankel and the surviving members of his family were transported to Auschwitz where his mother and brother were murdered in the gas chambers. His wife, Tilly, died later of typhus in Bergen-Belsen. Frankel spent three years in four concentration camps. He was rescued, he was released. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, because he was a doctor and a psychiatrist. And he said that when he was in the concentration camps, that there was, it did things to people. And that there were three primary things that it did. There were some people who kind of just turned into animals. They went into survival mode. They became brutal and harsh and did whatever they had to do to make their life and existence there better. He said some people, with all hope and all joy and everything taken away from them, just gave up. All their circumstances had gotten so, so bad, they just, they just quit. And they died before they died. And he says there was a third type of person that remained human, continued being able to show compassion, continued to be able to exist in this sort of framework. And he said he noticed that about those, they were able to see something beyond the concentration camp. They had something further out to hold on to. There was something beyond the horizon for them. 
And so in trying to discuss this, he puts it this way. He says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Another way he puts it is, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. Paul has Jesus. But the reason he's in prison is for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, which is so that other people might have Jesus. Some of us need to get a better why in 2024. Need to get a better meaning in 2024 because so much of what we're aiming for is circumstantial. So much of what we've planned out for this year and what we're hoping for in this year that we could get or lose or gain or lose. But at the end of it, if you get it, does it matter in two years? Does it matter in 10? Does it matter in 50? Does it matter a hundred million years later when we're in eternity proclaiming the glory of Christ? See, Paul says this in verse 3, 4, 5. He says this, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He said, you've joined me in the gospel. You've joined me in the proclamation of the gospel. You've joined me, he's going to later say, in my imprisonment and my defense of the gospel, that y'all have participated in something that lasts and matters. Some of you should be full-time foreign missionaries. And some of you should participate in a church plant. Some of you should go into preaching ministry, pastoral ministry, but there's a whole lot of people in our church that are Lydia's and Ethiopian uh, and jailers and uh, Philippian jailers. We're going to work. But my goodness, what if this year, instead of losing 10 pounds, you prayed daily for three coworkers? What if that was on your list? What if this year, instead of running a half marathon, you invited every person on your street to eat dinner at your house. And you labored that there might be more tongues and mouths proclaiming the glory of Christ in eternity. What if we participated in the gospel? And so that at the end of all of this, at the end of our lives, when anything ran into us to cause us problems or to mess us up, when our circumstances changed, it actually didn't matter because we were eternally focused on the glorious King and His goodness and rescue and hope in the gospel. And so our circumstances are just our circumstances, but our mission stays our mission. And so suffering isn't wasted because it has a meaning. And honestly, suffering can't take it away from us. Difficulty can't take it away from us because the hope of the gospel remains and the glory of Christ remains. I'd love for you to lose 10 pounds and run a half marathon. Put the sticker on the back of your car. We're proud of you. That takes work. It takes focus. But Paul says, it's good. But when you die, it's over. Your abs don't go to heaven. But there are people around you who might. 
And they might not. And there's a hope of a gospel that's worth it. So by God's grace, and as we study Philippians, may we tap in to partnership with Paul in the gospel for the glory of Christ in all of eternity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're thankful because of Jesus, our circumstances won't win. Our sin won't win. The enemy won't win because you have gloriously redeemed a people for yourself. And Lord, we ask that we would lift our eyes and that we would await a savior from heaven and that our life would look like that's where we're at. That that's where our hope is, that that's where our courage is, that that's where our joy is. And may we be a people who participate in the gospel, praying and laboring for our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends, hosting and welcoming and sharing and declaring for the sake of the glory of your name among all the nations. Lord, may you call people right now to quit their job, pack their bags, and go to another nation. Lord, may you call people right now to begin to commit to participating in a church plant in an area that needs one. And Lord, may you call people right now and bring to mind those people that they already work with, that they already live near. And may they participate fully in the gospel and partner, just as the Philippians did with Paul. And by your grace, may we get to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to come back up. We're going to sing. I would encourage you to take a moment and to consider where your energy's going, where your effort's going, what your meaning is, what your why is, and begin to ask the Lord to help you see how you might partner in the advancement of the gospel, who you might begin to pray for who you might begin to labor for, what you might begin to take on, what you might begin to get rid of so that you have more room to the praise of his glorious name.